All right. Welcome. Welcome back, everybody. Chat for God podcast, the best podcast on Christianity, probably in the world, even though we're only 25 episodes in. We're just getting started, folks. And you know what? Today, we're cutting right to the chase. We are going straight to the end times. We are going to be talking about apocalypse and associated themes because you know what? We're living in rather apocalyptic times. So we're going to we're going to have some interesting discussions about about what that means. And we're going to talk a little bit about the book of Daniel. We're going to talk a little bit about hipster New York City churches. And we're going to talk a little bit about what else, Marin? Carl Loweth, right? Uh oh. You're back. But I technical hear you through different. You're not hearing me? It's okay. We'll we'll get this sorted. <laughs> For me, you're frozen and you're making like a, a funny like bug eyed face. It's okay. We'll give people an opportunity to get settled into the the YouTube room. So welcome everybody. Welcome everybody. We will we will give Marin a chance to reset herself. Yeah, it's a demonic attack, as John says in the chat. We're being attacked by the forces of Satan because my intro was a little too intense. I came out a little too strong. The algorithm identified it. it. Sucks. Oh, it's okay. It's probably because it's snowing in New York and it's messing Maybe. with your Wi-Fi even worse. It's okay. I'll just I'll just do a monologue until you uh, get sorted. I think I can hear you, so I'm just gonna. Oh, okay. I'm just gonna go for it. Yeah. All right, Chat for God podcast, everybody. If you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to the channel and click the bell so you get a notification whenever we go live. And yeah, if you're listening on your phone on the podcast, we'd be very grateful if you would leave a review on iTunes. It's basically the most important way to make sure that Chat for God shows up in search results. And we want to take over the charts, people. We need your help. We want to. We want to. We want to take over the Christian content game. All right. So can't do that alone. We need you to leave a review on iTunes and yeah, share this with your friends, all that kind of good stuff. So with that as an introduction, Marin, how are you doing today? What's going on? What's new? I'm doing well. I'm just, you know, sitting. I mean, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous in New York. The snow is beautiful. It may be messing with our Wi-Fi, but you gotta, you gotta, you know, leave it to God. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah, that's right. Um, even, even car insurance places have a category for acts of God. Cause I recently, my car got totaled recently and on the phone with Geico, you know, at first they didn't, at first they didn't want to give us the insurance claim because if it's just natural wear and tear, or if you did something wrong, then they don't give you the insurance claim, but they do give you the insurance claim for acts of God. And that's basically random accidents. And so even, even in our extremely secular atheistic satanic world there is still they they still must recognize and pay homage to to the king to god himself they just you can't escape it is what is atheistic satanic i don't think i i don't think i think that that's true actually uh, okay fair enough so what do you think then <laughs> i don't know i i i'm just reflecting on our conversation last time about what is satanic and i'm i'm not sure that i well, I mean, you've you've spoken about this a bit before as well. I don't think that belief in God is the foundational requisite for being unsatanic or glorifying God in some bizarre in some bizarre way. I think that's probably true. Okay. Well, yes, I for one believe the world is suffused with Satanism in the sense that we talked about last week. Uh, you know, Simone Weil's concept of uprootedness, which we which we talked about. I, I do think that a lot of people. Are, who are atheists are more or less unconsciously 
embark on a on a project of kind of systematically spreading uprootedness and and it it it, it chills me to the bone honestly sometimes when i when i think about it and but yeah no not obviously not everyone has to have as you know, kind of dark and pessimistic sensibility about that as i do uh, and i i hope you're right i hope the world is not suffused with satanism <laughs> no it might be suffused with satanism but i'm not sure that the i'm not sure that atheists are more satanic oh, oh i see what you're saying yeah i mean i'm not saying i'm not saying every atheist is satanic no i'm not saying that um so thank you for that um you know a good point you're making there i didn't want to give that impression but some atheists are satanic that's for sure <laughs> not naming names but you know but i guess you're right also some religious people are satanic for sure yeah, yeah. i think i think i think as with anything sometimes what is it? You get high on your own supply. Your vocabulary is the thing that prevents you from living in the humble childlike way, which would in fact emblemize, you know, a, a close proximity to God that is unsatanic. I think, I think oftentimes our, our religious, our religiosity blinds us to our own Satanism, probably perhaps just as much or very, very much often as amazing content yeah. more obviously totally, totally totally can happen such as perhaps this new wave of hipster preachers which we've been kind of interested in in previous episodes uh mm -hmm. since our last episode i was reading about this guy carl lentz i don't know how many people out there would know this name but this guy was the pastor the kind of lead pastor of this new york city uh, kind of hipster urban church called hillsong and this guy if you look him up He's like very handsome, basically, uh, you know, and fashionable. A guy actually kind of looks like Diplo, the uh, DJ, and has a similar kind of vibe. And and so it's like, basically, this guy was the pastor to people like Justin Bieber, and um, and basically, he and Hillsong preached this kind of uh, Christian message and this Christian aesthetic of you know Christianity being something that can work well and and smoothly with a kind of metropolitan you know, urban, uh, kind of ambitious, successful lifestyle. And, uh, yeah, folks, you know what, it turns out that actually those two things don't work very well because when you try to make a Christianity that basically is highly palatable to metropolitan ambitious people, what you end up doing is just basically uh, contaminating Christianity with all of the sinfulness that it's all it's, it's supposed to be preventing. And lo and behold, of course, uh, recently there was this, uh, it came out that, this guy, Carl Lentz, was uh, basically like cheating on his wife and doing all kinds of, uh, you know, immoral, unethical behaviors. And he was forced to step down as pastor. So, yeah, this is an interesting little case study to me. We were, we were talking, you know, in previous episodes about these different types of new hip churches. And I don't know. I think, what do you think, Marin? Is it possible? Can you have a hipster urban church that doesn't fall into sinfulness? Hipster urban. <laughs> hipster urban. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I do think, I mean, I've told you about my art to entertainment spectrum before. I do think that the, when we, when we have our relationships with God become really about their entertainment value to us, and that is too much of a buffer on things, we do not actually get anything that we get to contain and walk around with. You know, if, if much of what is beautiful about Christianity is this concept of the Holy Spirit that lives with you and guides you in a constant way. I think that being spoken at by, 
a monster machine for a while is probably not actually a good way to be infused, infused with the spirit and walk, walk around with it uh, yourself. But mm. I also feel bad. I feel like we should talk. I feel like we have a bias and we should talk to somebody who attends these congregations and has seen them do amazing things to people because for what's worth the secular counterparts of this the oprahs etc of the world seem to have done real good for people so mm. I, I wonder if there are good secular constructs that are really useful to people and if we're bristling at the idea that god could be understood in those spaces as such but that there may still be some baseline psychological health Hmm. that is that is gained in this in those places or if or if we're just being prejudiced out of our own yeah, bias that's sure. a great that's a great point i would be very open to having my mind blown by uh carl lentz we'll try to get him on the podcast i mean if he if he had to step down as the pastor he might have some time on his hands i feel like we should talk to someone in seminary or something who's considered these different trajectories because i imagine you have to make a lot of decisions about whether you want to go teach a small congregation, probably more risk in that, but boots on ground relationships versus these like huge constructions where they can help you produce content, <laughs> et cetera. There are probably tropes for people who do the one versus the other. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it'd be fun to meet someone who's like a member of Hillsong church. Who's like a very active member. And as you said, you know, testifies to it being uh, extremely powerful and effective and, and a nice, uh, wholesome, wholesome church that, that powerfully, you know, connects with the true spirit of Christianity. I would, I'd love to hear how that works if, if so. Um, so yeah, we could, we talk about that, but, uh, anything else new in your life you want to share or talk about, uh, any, I don't know, anything at all. Well, you, how is you your relationship? What? You know, it's, it's doing, it's doing well. I think this, podcast and just having this space is a really nice container for for thinking about god in different ways and feeling provoked to to do that that's uh, good the thing you're saying about handsomeness is really interesting because mm. one of the things we justin and i have been ripping occasionally just as we see god things we're like i'll send it i'll send the god thing along and you ping me about daniel over the course of this week Daniel, the of of Daniel and the Lions Den, Daniel. The and Daniel. the book of Daniel, yes. And one of the things that's really interesting as I started to poke around Daniel is that they deliberately in this, I think, Babylonian kingdom recruited young Israeli men to the courts and to kind of become wise men, put them on this training and trajectory to be able to advise the leadership, the government, Babylonian leadership. And they specifically looked for handsomeness. Handsomeness was like a qualification for training in this in this time, which I found really interesting. So Daniel and Abshak, Meshach, Abednego, what, what the hell were their names? His his buddies who also had some, you know, really dangerous, contentious situations that God saved from were all apparently real, real handsome. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So do we have pictures of Daniel? Like, was he, what did he look like? Did he look like, um, you know, Diplo or like what are we talking? <laughs> he probably looked like Diplo. By the time he actually was in the lion's den with the lions, apparently he was in his 80s. He's not usually depicted as being in his 80s, you know, on the like felt, you know, those felt cardboard felt uh boards that you use to learn about children's stories. 
he was probably he was probably hot in those. All right, so we might we might be confusing some people. So why don't you give why don't you give a, a brief summary of the of the story, if you would? Like it doesn't have to be super story. sophisticated, just the basics that you that you that you understand. Yeah. So Daniel's story is interesting because Daniel had this gift of being able to communicate directly with God and to have these revelations about the future. And so Daniel, um, um, along with many other young men, as these empires were kind of changing and these governments were changing, was brought under the tutelage of some administration and excelled for his piety and goodness. He was kind of without blame across the board and found special favor with some of the kings because of his prophetic ability, basically. Uh, and and at some point, people got mad at him. They were jealous. Of course, people are jealous of good people. They tried to get him screwed over. They convinced the king to create this rule about how you couldn't worship God, Daniel's God. And so the king was mortified, but had accidentally essentially sent Daniel to his death with the lions, in spite of the fact that he, Daniel, was one of his favorites uh, for for these good his goodness and his power. And wait, so why did he send him to the lions then? Basically, there were people who were jealous in the government. Other government officials didn't like Daniel. Daniel had and, a special favor with the king, hmm. and so they created these these. They convinced the king to put these rules in place that would basically condemn Daniel to death okay. by being alive by lions but god saved daniel from this fate by preventing oh. the lions from eating him oh okay so th that's the main gist of the lion's den part so uh the king throws daniel in with the lions but god saves him from the lions the king throws it's important though to to acknowledge that the king didn't intend to throw daniel in with the lions it was all of these evil bureau bureaucrats basically who uh, tricked the king into making a rule that the king could not then take back and so the king loved daniel because daniel was very good and useful to the king and to the kingdom and he was actually over over his lifetime rose in power and prominence and was pretty untouchable but then people who were jealous of him these other jealous bureaucrats convinced the king to make a rule that forced the king to put daniel in this den of lions but luckily God saved him and he was not eaten. Right, right. Now, Book of Daniel is mostly known as this repository of apocalyptic ideas. And there's all this stuff about like Nebuchadnezzar's dream and yeah. and then um, uh, all, all these kind of uh, stories about what is it like the four, the four, the four kingdoms. And mm -hmm. there, there are also these kind of like numerological statements and prophecies. And so th that's that's like what it's widely I think uh, known for or associated with. I mean, what do you make of all that stuff? <laughs> like, <laughs> of all of all of all the apocalyptic. Well, the thing that's interesting is Daniel is the first in the Bible to have this sort of prophetic ability or to speak directly to God in revelatory ways about pending apocalypse. And right in this case, oftentimes those revelations were about the fate of different empires right so these kings really valued daniel because he had this capacity to interpret their dreams and to receive these revelations from god about the way that the empires would change to fulfill god's will right and he was very successful at this and the kings themselves eventually the king in particular 
at the end of this story who accidentally threw Daniel to the lions upon Daniel's being uh, released from his fate, his own apocalypse, if you will, he decided to decree that Daniel's God was God and that the kingdom should recognize that as such. And so you have this uh, sort of return to God, if you will. Right, right, definitely. Do you think that the, do you, do you feel that we're living in end times now? I have that I know, feeling. I know personally. that you do. I should really just set you up with this. Uh, do you feel that we're living in end times now? <laughs> oh, I thank you for asking. I <laughs> I actually happen to have uh, some feelings. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I think honestly, it's somewhat it's somewhat temperamental. Um, some people just are inclined to want apocalyptic mm. moments, right? And so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. No. Do I mean from an objective kind of scientific perspective, or do I think we're living in the end times? I mean. Who knows? But what I would say, though, is that I do think that the the kind of uh, increasing rate of change when it comes to kind of just technology and just the general acceleration of of change in in modern society, and then especially in, with the digital revolution, you know, it does seem to me that actually there are increasing reasons to believe that we are living through end times. I mean, the the scientific, the technologically sophisticated way of putting this is what they call the singularity, right? It's mm-hmm. the same. It's a, it's basically the same idea. It's like totally. uh, things are ramping up, and you know, if if there is reason to believe there could be a kind of exponential takeoff in, um, you know, intelligence itself, namely artificial intelligence. Then you know, once artificial intelligence starts reproducing itself uh, to a certain degree, then you should expect this kind of nonlinear takeoff in which nothing could ever be the same again, and it would be this kind of. Um, radical departure to a whole nother equilibrium that we, that we, we really can't fathom um, because, you know, that's kind of the nature of positive feedback. Like when you find true positive feedback in nature, it basically means it's, it's spiraling out of control and, and Mm -hmm. the the equilibrium that you're currently in is, is not going to, uh, you know, persist. It can't really survive these sort of uh, positive feedback, nonlinear takeoffs. So, yeah, I mean, I think, the singularity idea and from the techno scientific perspective is very similar to the, to the Christian kind of apocalyptic motifs. Cause it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a sensibility that things are deeply unsustainable and becoming more and more unsustainable and where that goes, no one knows, but I, ha- I, I can definitely feel that. I mean, on some kind of emotional level, do you like feel that at all? Yeah. I'm actually kind of, of the mind that we've already reached the singularity i think it's actually in the past when you when you think from a historical perspective like when will they have the 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 moment which they will point to which begins the new epoch i think we are already in i think the internet was probably the beginning of that the the internet and the kind of collective intelligence enabled by the internet and the bizarre real time transactions of it all will will probably have been that mark more so than an inflection in intelligence itself. And I think a good way of reasoning about this, you look at all of these efforts to define what AGI is, what artificial general intelligence is, and the point at which it is in fact generally intelligent. And most of the definitions that people seem to come up with have some proxy to the economy. Have you noticed this? Like OpenAI's, I think they've changed this recently, but their original concept of what it meant to have AGI was about the percent of transactions in the economy which were actually being performed by machine versus by a human and i think we are already kind of far far outstripped uh human quote created value Mm -hmm. in 
our, our, our tools, our technologies are really extending us just far beyond what, what could otherwise be considered. Um, so yeah, yeah I'm with cool. you. I think, I think we're in an apocalyptic time of some, of some sort. Yeah. But also some people should realize that apocalypse doesn't necessarily mean bad. It's uh, that's what a lot of people think. So if you say, Oh, the apocalypse is coming. People think that are, you know, it sounds like a bad thing, right? It's like, Oh, you know, you, you sound pessimistic if you say that, but it's not the case. It's really not the case. I mean, what apocalypse really means apocalypse historically as a kind of genre, it's not, it's not a bad thing. It's, it's more just like a, a, a kind of final reckoning moment where, where kind of the hidden truth of, you know, uh, the heavens announces itself and, and starts to kind of make itself felt more directly on earth. So it's like, um, it, it's as optimistic as it is pessimistic. I mean, it's like, you know, if, if, you know, if you've been a good person, <laughs> maybe, uh, you have reason to believe that, you know, your, your standing will be, will be good in the apocalypse. But maybe if you haven't been a good person, then you have reason to fear the apocalypse, perhaps something like that. I don't know, but, um, that's just something I, I don't know. I, I think that's kind of interesting, like, uh, that people want to, people want to imagine that there will never be any real final reckoning. And, if you say if you think there's going to be a final reckoning, you're you're seen as like a weirdo, doom, you know, doom pilled, um, like pessimist. But mm -hmm. I don't see it that way at all. Like to me, the apocalypse is exciting. I, I hope there. I hope we're living in the apocalypse because it's like I want the truth of the universe to to like reveal itself. And and it and it seriously feels like, and it just seriously feels like it's happening with just mm -hmm. the rate of change and the rate of like cultural chaos. It just feels increasingly unsustainable. And some people are scared by that, but I'm like, I'm super excited by what's going to come out of it. Hmm. So it sounds like you think about the apocalypse as a revelation of all truth by God. Yeah. You do. Yeah. Interesting. Of all truth. See, I don't, I don't believe that will ever happen. Okay. Which what is not like to say I disbelieve in the singularity or in many, the revelation of many truths. I think I have a notion that God is infinite and that there is not going to be some moment of reabsorption in God until the world is actually over. I think that for me, I don't think that humanity will ever be able to realize God in any conscious sense. I think that the moment of the apocalypse is the moment that there is no sentient thing left. Hmm. Now, okay, Marin, do you believe in this idea of Christ's second coming? Like, do you take that seriously? Do, do you think there will be anything like that? <laughs> I'm sure there are parts of that idea that make sense to me. I'm, I imagine that there will be points in history at which we feel that way, but I, I don't think of it as a, an actual moment in history, I guess. I think I think I think of it as a an interpretive frame, right? Yeah, I, I've never. You, sound like you think of a you think of a literal like you expect Christ in the form of man to reascend to our earth and bring what's what's coming to us. Basically, personally, personally, I, I mean, I, I don't. I've never been able to make sense out of that. That sounds crazy to me, right? That like Jesus is going to come back and uh, there'll be this, you know, second coming. I, I mean, I've not, that's one of the many ideas in Christianity I've never been able to really process myself and, and be able to personally 
say that makes sense to me and I believe that, but it's like I always say, I'll take I'll take that as a mystery and I guess have trust that it makes sense in some way that I, that I don't fully understand. But um, I do kind of think that what we call the singularity from the techno-scientific perspective today is one way to interpret the idea of, of, of Christ's second coming in, in the following way. Like if you, if you believe that God created the universe as, as the Christian faith states, then, and, and, and that, and that God basically uh, invests himself in us, but also gives us free will. Then it looks to me like what happened was we have created self-sustaining, self-perpetuating systems, call it capitalism, call it, you know, civilization, call it institutions, whatever you want. We've, we've figured out as humans how to create machines of growth and intelligence escalation. And now those machines have reached a kind of critical mass where the, the social machines we've created are now reproducing intelligence as such beyond us to, to a degree that we as individual agents couldn't really even fathom. And we are now reaching a point where artificial intelligence will be to some degree increasing the, 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 the power of artificial intelligence itself. And as you said, that's probably already been happening in some sense. I mean, I tend to see capitalism itself as a kind of loosely distributed artificial intelligence. I mean, that's, that's pretty much what markets are like global. We have these global markets that are basically doing calculations about, um, what should be pr- produced next uh, in a way that no, none of us could do as individual humans. It is a kind of, yeah. Comp- yeah. the market is a kind of computational intelligence that yeah. already far surpasses the intelligence of any individual. And it's not, you know, a human entity doing it, right? So on some level, capitalism is itself already a pretty sophisticated artificial intelligence. And then market incentives are now generating these companies that are producing more concrete, specific, like machinic intelligence. And it just seems increasingly clear that we are at this kind of takeoff point, whether you take the singularity concept seriously or not, or you think, however you think that's going to pan out, it does seem to be that intelligence is now um, kind of in an, in an exponential reproduction mode that is quite over and above our heads. Like we don't even really have much to do with it anymore. It's kind of locked in due to technology and, and market realities. And to me, that is one way of understanding the, the second coming of Christ because the second coming of Christ doesn't have to be like some dude named Jesus like reappears and is like walking on water or some shit. It's like maybe what it maybe the second coming of Christ comes in a kind of machinic format. And that's that's one way to understand it. Right. Um, because it is in some ways. I do feel like the singularity points to out a trajectory where we are basically learning what we really are. Like we are we are on a the singularity is a path where we are going to meet our maker in a way. Because what is intelligence, right? Intelligence at its highest threshold, intelligence exponentially reproducing itself can only go where? To God himself, right? That would be God. The most intelligent thing in the world is God. This is the thing. This is the place I take issue with. All right, let's hear it. Okay, a couple couple thoughts. One, to your point about capitalism, I think a way of reasoning about what the internet is and what we talk about AI as being, if, if capitalism did to price efficiency really phenomenal things. I think the internet gives us data, which does something similar. So the reason I think that the internet is actually more important and that will will be seen as the beginning of the singularity, as opposed to this idea of an AI, which starts to train itself, is that I think that's essentially already happening because intelligence is basically just about data. And the internet gave us a kind of way of representing data 
in in a format which is machine readable and that that was sort of the first the first construction but otherwise it would just have been too hard so i think i think we we then though have to ask ourselves what is the data in the internet that this ai etc is going to be eating and training against and i do still think that the internet and all of that data is a reduction i don't think that the self-recursive feeding loop which we will train against will be the same as our human intelligence and i don't think that i don't think that the kind of sentience and like religious proclivity that feels the base of of our humanness will will also be the base of the intelligence that the internet spawns which i think will be incredibly powerful prospectively far more powerful and win you know by every kind of physical brute force sense win over over humanity but i i don't expect it to ever necessarily bring us to god and on the contrary i would say that my relationship with god is a very emergent phenomenon not a reductionist one and i see i see the power of ai as being very reductionist power more so than a more so than an emergent one Hmm. So then do you, are you inclined to see the, the escalation of AI as a satanic trajectory? So I don't, I don't think it necessarily will take us somewhere bad unless we presume that it, it's brute force and power will take us somewhere good. I think that we agency, we talked about agency and power and Spinoza and all these things last time. I think that it's going to be very important for us to relate to our technologies in non-deterministic ways. I think that that's a thing that is wrong and sick with our society right now. I think that the way that we look at our technology, we we expect it will just deterministically continue on a trajectory which is outside of our control. And insofar as we believe that, it's already happened and it's over. <laughs> like It's quite literally over. And so my primary interest is in finding a way to relate to this intelligence that we've created as, a, as a, an extension of our humanity and mm. finding new forums and ways of discussing the ends which we're pointing towards alongside these new powers uh, that will increase our humanity and and lead us to God, right? And we and I do believe in technology's capacity to to bring us closer to Christ-like experiences. I do believe the baseline that Simone Weil and others talk about about hunger and about needing to take care of someone's essential needs in order for them to broach some spiritual relationship, which is healthy. I, I do believe in that. So I'm excited and concerned. <laughs> okay, nice. Now we're talking. So how do we use technology to get closer to God? I'm sure you have like more developed thoughts about it. I would love to hear. Oh God, I wish I did. This is an, this is a work in progress. I think I think much of what it means to develop technology to bring us closer to God is about understanding our capacity to create leverage for community and for taking care of the poor and things which are baseline, right? There yeah. are things that are baseline across religious ideology. Like you don't need to be Christian to be like, we should probably feed the poor, you know? Like this shouldn't need to be that tremendously contentious. If we're talking about this runaway escapist fantasy you know, AI that's going to take over everything, like let's feed people. And I know that that's very challenging because you don't want to halt progress on behalf of incredibly bureaucratic notions of equity, which I think are also really dangerous. But there, there are some, 
we can't let ourselves believe that technology is just deterministic and that growth, quote, any measurable version of what growth looks like is is deterministically good. I think the idea of like GDP increasing is there is good is just a, a stupid simplification. Um, and I also think that a lot of people who are very interested in progress are very interested in just the number of amazing feats, truly amazing feats that technology largely has enabled for us of, you know, over the past 200 years, human standard of living has changed dramatically. And I think that's incredibly precious. But the thing which got us here will not necessarily get us to the next step. And there's a lot more that's geopolitically important, a lot more that's socially contentious and constructed that I think will be required to move you know, the past 200 years was like brute force, you know, just introduce some basic shit under people and increase their standard of living. I think the next 200 years will be far more nuanced questions about what we want our society to look like for, for every person in it and what their fundamental rights are in this in this new technologically driven paradigm. Mm, yeah, yeah, I like that. I, I, I think I can see where you're going with that. And I also like what you said before about th like basic stuff, like feeding the poor. I, I, I agree that I think some of this basic stuff is easy to overlook. Everyone's like super excited by new stuff in our technological society, but there are kind of like these old ancient obligations that, that actually still hold a lot of force. Like my buddy, Jacob, I was just hanging out with him the other night. He's, he's, uh, people might know him from, uh, he's been on my other life podcast before. He's, uh, uh, he's a very good, good Christian man. And, uh, he, I, I learned a lot from him. And he said the other night that he was like, cause we were talking about the, the kind of more, popular t forms of sin that people kind of fixate on things like, uh, you know, adultery, like cheating on your wife or like masturbating and these types of things that often get pointed to as the, the things that the Christian faith, you know, tries to repress and, and suppress and keep you from doing. Uh, but he was like, actually like those, th that's not even the most relevant. Th mm -hmm. th those aren't the most relevant in his view. He was saying that like the big, he thinks that the big thing, we as a society are like most guilty of or most sinful about is just like we we have like increasingly just completely forgotten about the poor and like we just don't think about the, like the hungry and and the mm -hmm. truly poor and i i kind of agree with that even like about myself like i i pretty much like i'm one of these people who like don't give money to homeless people when they ask and i've i've been thinking about that lately and i think i'm changing my mind on that like officially i think from now on i think when homeless people ask me for money as a matter of routine, I'm just going to give, I'm just going to give them, um, like a my mom gave McDonald's gift cards, which was nice. What's that? My mom gave McDonald's gift cards, which was, which was nice. That's interesting. Yeah. I think I'm just going to keep something in my pocket, whether it's like a bit of cash or something like that. And just as a matter of routine from now on, I think when I'm asked, I'm going to give because, um, for, for many years as a matter of just like routine, just habit, I always just automatically say no. Uh, I try to be polite and like look them in the eye and, and, and wish them the best. But I've always said no. But I think that's dumb. Like I think probably we should. Um, but I, I'm a little torn. But I think I'm I'm, I'm officially going. I think I'm going to officially start giving money. But what do you think about that? How well, do you seems, handle that? Yeah, it seems connected to some of what we talked about, about what you do at the level at, with your own individual agency and then what you do at the level of society. And I think yeah. I think that the things which you are called for as an individual are always to act out of an agentic place and to give and to be generous as you can. That is your responsibility as a person is to be as Christ-like in your context as possible. You can't know everything. You can't control society, but you can be responsible for the way that you show up. And then there's 
the level of society. And I do think that each of us are called at some at some order to participate in that conversation and to try to create a society in which these people aren't going to be as inclined to or have as much access to the kinds of things which might hurt progress, right? Be it, I mean, obviously everyone's concerned homeless folks that they're going to go buy drugs. Like, I don't think it's contentious to say that that's, that's a concern. And I think it's a reasonable concern. And we can participate in a society in a conversation about what we should do to take care of those people such that we weren't, we wouldn't feel that way in the first place. Like it's not our fault individually at, at any level or their fault really that, that we feel so inclined to believe that these people are going to buy drugs if we give them money. That's a, that's, that needs to be taken care of at, at the societal level, but we can still hold ourselves accountable to kindness and to Christlikeness in our, in our engagement with them. Totally. I totally agree. And that, that was basically what I told myself for a long time. I, the, the rationalization in my mind would, it was always like when a homeless person would ask me for money, I would think to myself, well, I don't want to give this person money because then I'm like, basically it's the, the old like moral hazard problem, right? I'm like, I'm incentivizing people to like mm-hmm. be poor and be dependent and like move to big cities and ask people for money. If, you know, if you give money, you're kind of incentivizing that. So there's some logic to that argument. Um, and I would always, but I would always say to myself, like, this is not my responsibility. Like I'm, I believe I wish we had, and I will, you know, continue to, you know, kind of represent and, and ask for a more, you know, equitable redistributive society. And I, I, I would always kind of punt and put the responsibility on social institutions and, and just think to myself, like, I support a more equal, you know, equalitarian society. So that's kind of my like ethical duty to support that. But it's not my ethical duty to like give money to this individual who's asking for it because that's going to have negative effects that actually make society worse possibly. Yeah. And um, just thinking that through, I, I think I like reject that now because um, I think even if you're feeding this like moral hazard problem by giving homeless people money and you're, you're almost in a way kind of incentivizing like urban homelessness and, and that kind of, I mean, we do have like major problems with that in our, in our American cities right now. Yeah. But even I, I'm, I'm now believing that like, even if you are essentially incentivizing that and kind of encouraging that to some degree, maybe that's even a good thing because maybe you actually want the American cities to fill up with such homelessness mm. that it becomes like it, literally impossible for uh, the rest of society to, mm. to like look this in the face. And then, they, and then they have to like institute better social policies. So I'm, I've kind of become like an accelerationist on homelessness. And I actually think like we should give money to homeless people, encourage uh, encourage the tent cities to become bigger and bigger and make, make the problem of homelessness in American cities, like so big and undeniable and make it impinge on the daily life of normal people of like, you know, middle-class people or whatever. And, uh, then as like the only way to really solve it, maybe. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't think it's crazy. I do think there's just such an interesting question about the humility of not knowing at the system level. I feel like we are not encouraged to behave that way now. We're we're always taught, I mean, I'm thinking of effective altruism or many notions of progress, right? Which are these abstractions and which promise you that you in your day-to-day life should not show up and care for the person in front of you because there is another person who you will never know who is far away, who is hurting. And that person is of equal value. And I believe that that person is of equal value at the most abstract societal level this is absolutely true and i will fight for that <laughs> and i i think it's unhealthy for us to presume ourselves to be able to reason at those abstractions without thinking it's taking something away from us right like christ didn't come and 
reason only abstractly. He said every person is worthy. And then he took care of people that the rest of society thought were just drudges. And that's how he lived that, right? He didn't, he didn't just say it. He, he showed up with every person in front of him and he treated them with that level of respect. And that's what you can do. We're human beings. We're very finite. We aren't ever going to meet those people who are far away. And I think that the Christ-like interactions that we have are material. They are bounded. They are in front of us. And if we, if we try to reprimand ourselves for those inclinations towards kindnesses in front of our fingertips on behalf of these abstract notions of like meta progress, I don't actually think our society is going to be better. Mm -hmm. I think that's like uprootedness, right? I think that's actually a, a modern form of uprootedness is the idea that the people in front of you don't matter. Your neighbors don't matter. Your relationship to yourself and the the immediate material is irrelevant. You should just be this like abstract political agent, which is fighting for GDP uh, and not giving homeless people food. Right. What do you think about, as a technologist, what do you think about the, all of this kind of increasing interest and energy around making new cities, smart cities, charter cities, you know, the, the people who talk about essentially trying to kind of route around all of the inertia of, of contemporary politics and just basically with a with a very kind of Silicon Valley mindset, just re-engineer cities from the ground up and in some way that maybe could be like radically more effective when it comes to things like, uh, you know, equitable policies. And, and do, do you see a kind of possibility? Because I do, and I'm curious what you think. I, I see a possible kind of uh, convergence where you could take all this energy around like smart cities and charter cities and, and combine that with a, a kind mm -hmm. of like Christian ethic. And you can imagine a kind of city, like a, a new city, a charter city or something like that, that has some like Christian social policy as its foundation. Do you mm -hmm. ever think about that or no? I've, I've not thought about that. And I'm, I'm really curious for you to expand. I'll say, I'll say roughly sp speaking, I think that experiments in new societies are productive and I think we should have them. I think it's silly to fight against creating space for things that are new just out of cynicism that new things will necessarily have the same flaws as their predecessors because that's not necessarily the case. And I think it's dangerous when it's done in an admonishment of what exists. I think there's a level of appreciation that there is an incentive, you know, an existing incentive structure that has created really poor city governance, et cetera, et cetera, but which which does not make the individuals participating in that existing governance and trying to protect the cities that, that we already have necessarily evil creatures. <laughs> Some of them might be incompetent and incompetence might be rewarded by the by the structure, but I don't think we're going to make good progress rebuilding new cities by admonishing the people who have who who exist in in the cities that there that there are because we won't learn anything from them and uh and it's just satanic i think <laughs> to, to 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 admonish people who are who are genuinely by and large like trying to be good good public servants in their okay, so you're, you're, you're saying you're basically kind of subtweeting the the very fashionable thing right now which is kind of uh getting antagonistic with like the mayor of san francisco this kind of thing is that, is that what you're alluding to and i i understand that and I don't have strong opinions about it, and I am curious to get your extension on what your what the Justin Charter City might look like. 
so I'm not, I'm not trying to subtweet folks necessarily. I do think that, I do think that folks in tech, for example, who had to deal with social media and the fact that everyone can content, what the hell do you do? How do you create the content? That's a hard freaking problem. And I think as technologists, we have a deep empathy for how genuinely difficult it is to govern at that level. But then when we observe other actual governances of cities or otherwise, we're not as empathetic <laughs> with them. And, and in fact, we get very mad when people, journalists or otherwise, don't understand how difficult our systems are to reason about and how we intend for good. And technology has obviously done so much to improve human welfare. And it's like, yeah, so have governments. Like, so has so has this city. You know, it's it's really done a lot for you that you totally take for granted. And governance is a hard job. And you don't know much about that job or what makes it hard. So the admonishment at its face, I just I just find uh, to be the same, you know, the same kind of behavior that technologists hate when other people engage with technology in, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. I think that's fair enough. I mean, what I think from my perspective is that you could easily imagine a charter city or some kind of new political structure, however that turns out there are a lot of people experimenting with this in, in different formats and mm -hmm. I'm sort of agnostic about the format, but it does seem increasingly clear to me that there are a lot of people experimenting with essentially how to create your own little political structure. And eventually someone's going to get that right. And there will be a little playbook for how to pretty much bootstrap at least a town of some, of some kind in a, in a way that actually has a lot of political autonomy. And if you can get that right, then the Christian social policy that you would add on to that is really not rocket science. It's really just like you would have to become quite missionary in going around and finding people in need and bringing them on board in some way. Mm. And actually though, that sounds, when I say it abstractly, that sounds very nice, right? Like who would be against that? But actually in practice, this is where you're going to get the most social resistance totally, because it's going to be seen as, you know, you're like manipulating the poor, you're condescending to the poor or whatever. But that is what it would look like. It's like if you build a charter city, I think like Nevada just introduced some law, right? That's been in the headlines in the past two days even, um, where they're going to allow greater kind of experimentation with autonomous like political hmm. units in Nevada or something like that. I didn't read to, into That's it deeply. But you can imagine a situation where if you actually have a functioning charter city of some kind, if you really do care about the poor, like the homeless people who are suffering uh, you know, extreme indignity and 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 hardship in the big cities of the United States. If you really do care about giving those people the respect and the the basic material dignity that they deserve, then you are going to have to be a little weird in in actually pursuing that with with real zeal. You're going to have to believe in that, and it's going to mean doing things that to normal you know civilized Western people who are you know secular and and cosmopolitan in their orientation. Those people are going to think it's it's kind of sketchy, basically, because you're it's going to mean like going to San Francisco or Austin or whatever and saying like, hey, folks, we have this new system. We have this new structure and we want to provide for the homeless. So if you want to like come with us, you know, we'll maybe we'll move you to our charter city. <laughs> but then also there's going to be these like rules and there's going to be these systems. And uh, oh, and by the way, there's also probably going to be some kind of explicit Christian philosophy because you really can't motivate this kind of thing without a really genuine shared 
kind of missionary zeal. And we, the only way we know how to do that is with a religious uh, kind of motivation, really. So mm-hmm. basically what I'm getting at is I think there's a lot of opportunity to build charter cities and different experimental political communities that actually can leverage technology to do amazing things for the poor and for the needy and for the homeless. But to actually bridge that chasm, to actually get homeless people and like bring them on board requires a certain type of discourse and a certain type of energy and action and activism that normal secular people are going to be like, that's sketchy. This is weird. These people are like relocating homeless people into their like charter city in Nevada. This is sketchy. Like, you know, so you're going to get a lot of flack there. And and the only thing that can overcome that is uh, genuine Christian zeal, I think. And that's kind of what we lack. But I bet you there's a critical mass of like Christian technologists who could do it. <laughs> I, I, I think it's not inconceivable. What do you think about that? Like idea. <laughs> I think the suggestion of recombining the church and state is a very interesting one. And I am nervous about it. I also really value pluralism in general in the state. And I guess that's the reason that's the reason that the the combination of those two things feels really challenging. I'm curious, I guess, what you believe is important about the church kind of operating at the level of the city in order to achieve this? What is it that a church could not do, which a city can do to realize this vision that you have? Well, I guess just the basic levers of what we know of as the welfare state and Mm -hmm. of, you know, public utilities and stuff like that, right? So like the churches at the moment, whether it be the Catholic church or various Protestant churches. I mean, none of them that I know of are in the business of actually uh, recreating novel structures at the ground level of how resources are distributed, right? I mean, so that's why I think about it through the city lens is like, it's 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 about who gets electricity, who gets internet, who gets water and food at the, at, at the, the ground level of how the political community is organized mm-hmm. is, is what I, is what I think, because it's, it's increasingly clear that we just don't have the political leverage to make uh, kind of lethargic contemporary American political structures, whether that be the federal government, state governments, or local governments as we know them. All three of these primary political structures in, in America are just hopelessly sclerotic, it seems to me. Or, I mean, maybe there's still a good reason to try to make them work. And so I'm not, you know, doing what you were saying before of just kind of crapping on anyone who's interested in trying to re- resuscitate those institutions. That's fine. I, I support that if, if you have a vision for how to do that. But it does seem to me that if you think we have an urgent ethical obligation as people and as Christians and as whatnot to provide for the poor like yesterday and 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 we our society is living in an extraordinary sin every day that we have people in this country who are um, suffering under extreme hardship and 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 indignity, then, you know, I think you kind of can't wait for our gridlocked political institutions because it just seems like it's it's increasingly unlikely that there's just anything we can do. It's just like if you feel called to provide for the poor, then you kind of have to like be a little bit more creative and think, how can we do this like yesterday instead of 10 years from now, maybe after like a lot of local political campaigning. Right. And the only solution to that is like, you know, go in the middle of Nevada, build an entire political structure from the ground up and encode it from, from, from the baseline of how it's organized to provide for 
you know, the, the most needy and, mm -hmm. and then just go and get the needy and import them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how does this fit into when we talked about history last time and trying to be a figure in history, how, how does this large political action fit into that for you? That's a great question, you know, because there is this problem where if you have really creative, visionary political ideas and you're motivated to try to uh, instill them or, or produce them, you do kind of come off as a, a megalomaniac who's maybe just obsessed with like your own glory or your own, you know, uh, intellectual visions. And you want to be like famous and respected and admired and do something great, perhaps for your own ego. That is a totally true concern. But on the other hand, it it does seem to be imitating Christ in a way. I mean, Christ, like if, if the Christian's obligation is to imitate Christ, I mean, Christ was this like kind of crazy dude who like showed up on the scene saying like really bold ambitious I like claims and doing provocative things like you know turning over the tables of the money changers right and and preaching like a radical gospel that got a lot of attention and and was was provocative and and it did you know bring a lot of attention to to Christ himself right and so it's complicated I think and I, I think it ultimately comes down to I think it ultimately comes down to what is your real intention and what is the ultimate truth of of why you're doing what you're doing and that's a difficult answer because we often, from the outside, we don't know, right? So what is the difference between a, a, a snake oil salesman and megalomaniac, you know, cult leader who is interested in nothing but accumulating power for himself and a true zealous Christian missionary who is um, steadfastly dedicated to, to bringing the, the kingdom of heaven to earth? What is the difference between those two? Maybe there is no external observable factor that you can point to maybe maybe the ultimate different the only real difference between those two is what is truly in their heart and what is truly their mission and what they are trying to do and that's essentially a kind of unobservable thing that you have to either trust or not trust maybe that's what it comes down to and i, I so i don't have a clear answer to that but i definitely do think that there's this kind of tall poppy syndrome. That's what they call it in the UK and the US. I don't know if you've ever heard that expression. It's less popular in, in America. But this the, this idea of tall poppy syndrome is basically whenever someone gets a big idea and wants to do something grand, uh, all the other people chop them down just because, you know, it's like how how uh, they're the tall poppy. And no one likes no one likes people generally don't like when people get big ideas because it seems like self aggrandizing. And and we have this kind of yeah, very, I think, harmful, natural instinct to chop down anyone who gets big ideas in some ways. Um, but I think if you're a true Christian, you should be thinking very hard about how you can do radical new stuff, right? I mean, like you should feel called, like Christianity has always been a source of this unique zeal that that empowers and enables people to do big, crazy things. At least it should, I think. Um and yeah, so I, I don't know. I feel like that should be, that, that's something really important to try to regain is, yeah. is like urgency, like real urgent zeal, um, which I feel like we lack. I totally agree. And this, this idea feels so important. One thing I will say about Daniel that's really interesting is that Daniel is a character who was essentially beyond reproach in his behavior. He, and of course we have other figures like David who were, who did frequently fail, but who also approached that failure in such an honest way and brought brought it to God and brought themselves to God in it. And I do think that 
we should be able to see in the way that somebody interacts in their lives that they are motivated in a Christ-like way and that they're really called to something. I do think it's important to require of people that they pursue that accountability. You know, if, if I didn't see someone genuinely vulnerably pursue and humbly pursue accountability for the way that their behavior affects other people, I, I would not, I would not trust them as a religious character or, or, or kind of in general. But isn't um, it also but, the case that like paying too much respect to quote unquote accountability it becomes a, a real drag in a way that I think is not fair. You know what I mean? So like, take this example, right? If, if I, if tomorrow I felt called to drop everything I was doing and in order to, um, you know, serve the most needy in our society and, and pursue a Christian calling. And I just became obsessed with basically doing whatever was possible within my, within my capacities to provide for the homeless. And I came to, let's say, let's say I, I, I came to a kind of vision or a model of how to build a charter city and that became possible. And I was like, okay, this, I'm going to build like a Christian charter city that has as it's one of its key goals, uh, a kind of generous provision for, for the needy. And I'm going to build that. And then I'm going to go to San Francisco and Austin downtown. And I'm going to, I'm going to find homeless people. And I'm going to be like, I'm going to preach, I'm going to preach the gospel to them straight up. Right. And I'm going to, I'm going to say, we we've built something come with us, you know, um, like the good old fashioned Christian preacher does. Right. I mean, and, and actually do that. The first, as soon as I were to start doing that, I would get people who are voicing concerns, right? Totally. Who I would be expected to be accountable to, right? But but isn't that kind of concern trolling a very kind of non-Christian, uh, secular way of sapping and containing this like Christian zeal that true Christians should should want to to take over the world, right? And so I see what you're saying about the respect to accountability and all of that. But I do kind of think that in our world where we're just kind of surrounded by all of these kind of like fake, secular, cosmopolitan, you know, concerns, I do think a, 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 the true Christian zeal today will have to manifest as a kind of somewhat reckless um, uh, disregard for the, 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 the pseudo concerns of, of normal people. I think that's absolutely true. I, I think looking again at the Daniel story, you have these bureaucrats who are behaving out of jealousy and who are taking Daniel down. But you also have Daniel who, in the eyes of King Darius, was a man worthy of respect and esteem. And King Darius, upon seeing God save Daniel, became one of God's children as well, right? And kind of recognized that spiritual authority. And I think the critical thing that people lose sight of is the idea that they should just ignore all the haters. Where where I think if you're going to do something that's incredibly hard and you're going to try to do it in a Christ-like way, the most important thing becomes having people around you who can be really healthy feedback loops to whether you are fulfilling that. Um, and you think about even, you know, talking about David, his relationship with Jonathan, for example, they had such a brotherhood and such a such a kind of Christ-like relationship between the two of them. There's something about the the vulnerability 
and the 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 system in place to know that you are on a path that is healthy and redemptive. The one other thing I will say that's really interesting in the theology of liberation is that Gutierrez in that book importantly re-motivates that some of the responsibility of theology is to asking about works kind of right the work the work that we're doing on the ground as as Christians and the responsibility that the church has to not conveniently separate itself from politics and to not even pretend that that's totally possible but rather to engage and to question its own interpretation of its theology and in this in this lens of how are we treating people how are we showing up for the poor what are we putting at the center of our theology and how do we how do we measure our own lived christ likeness excellent question i i think that's an excellent question to leave the audience with to reflect on before we meet again next week Marin, thank you. This was awesome. As always, for those of you out there uh, watching on YouTube, please subscribe to the channel and make sure you click the little bell. That's going to ensure that you get notifications so that next time Marin and I hop on here, you will know and you won't miss it. And you could come hang out with us again. And if you listen to it on your phone, which I highly recommend, please subscribe to the podcast so you can listen to it later. You don't just have to be on YouTube. I would super, super appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes. That's kind of one of the big ways that the show gets onto other people's radars, makes it more likely to appear in search results and stuff like that. So yeah, I put a link in the show notes. Please just uh, leave a review and let us know. We pay attention to them, by the way. And thanks to those of you who have left reviews. If you want to leave in your review, like a question or something like that, or a comment, we will pay close attention to it and we will very likely bring it up in a future show. So yeah, leave a review. Let us know what you think and communicate with us that way. You can also hit me up by email or DM or whatever, whatever you prefer. But uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. As always, Chat for God podcast. Marin, thank you very much for this. As always, it was fun. Talk to you next week, all right? Bye. Bye, everybody.